Hello and welcome to the Literature Podcast, A Novel Review. My name is Seamus, your host, and together we will discuss, dissect, and explore the wonderful world of literature, and the wonderful world of literature is a vast and dense jungle, so let's start making our way through, one book at a time. Hello, good day, and welcome to the beginning of another episode, perhaps even welcome back to a few of you, to another episode of A Novel Review, a podcast exploring the wonderful world of literature. My name is Seamus and I am your host, and for today's episode, The Father of Tragedy. Well, at least as far as we know, yes, today I will be talking about the Greek playwright Aeschylus, and the first part of his Orestian trilogy, Agamemnon. But before I descend into this play, I always take a moment to reflect on any mantelpiece moments, something to highlight from the week past, and today, a bit of theatre. On the weekend, I had the wonderful opportunity to go to the Harold Pinter Theatre here in London to see A Little Life, which is the theatre production of Hany Yanagihara's novel by the same name that came out, I think, 2015, and was even nominated for the Booker. I think it was shortlisted. Uh, And if anyone has read this novel, you might be thinking, damn, that is an incredibly abuse-filled novel, incredibly dark, incredibly nihilistic because there's no sort of philosophical resolution at the end that inspires hope. It's incredibly dark. How will it translate to the stage? Well, it transfers really well, actually. The makeup and props department definitely deserve their monies because throughout the novel, and this is a bit of a trigger warning, there is a lot of cutting, a lot of graphic cutting, a lot of self-flagellation, and the props department in the theatre production make it look damn realistic, to the point that it's actually incredibly confronting watching someone cut themselves and blood pour out. Now, because of those reasons, I wouldn't recommend this novel to someone who might struggle reading these kinds of passages, and then on top of that there's of course the graphic rape and the, the child abuse, the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, uh, the child rape, yeah, uh, the list goes on and on and on. It's it's incredibly dark, but it's much the same in the stage production. And, I mean, I loved the novel, so I was very keen to see how the stage production would do. The main character is Jude St. Francis, and in the theatre production he's played by James Norton, who does a great job, and I'm a fan of, in the BBC production of War and Peace. And, I mean, he he does a fantastic... Like, it's his show. He definitely carries the show in that sort of sense. But everyone else is fantastic, don't get me wrong. If anyone's read the book, you might remember the social worker, Anna. She has a... I'd say a pretty small part in the book, but she has a much larger presence in the stage production. And it actually worked wonders for the story because it just added this level of depth that was... I don't know, it just sort of added this depth to the stage production that really sort of hammered home how dark this story really is. So... It was fantastic. It was a great experience. I'd recommend if you're in London or thereabouts, head along to see it because it was wonderful. If you can't head along to London because for whatever reason, you know, get the book and give it a read. It's it's a big one, but it's 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 worth a read, I reckon. So that was my mantelpiece moment for this week. Housekeeping as always, all the scripts from the episodes are available on my website, just in case you know of anyone who has hearing impairments who might get a kick out of a written version of the pod. So head along, they're all free for use, for all to enjoy. The link is in the episode description. It should be at the top there. You cannot miss it. Okay, the show must go on, as they say in theatres, and that's exactly where we're going today. 
Hot damn, who wrote this script? That is a fine segue. Uh, we are going back to the Greek theatre to be precise. The Orestian trilogy is a combination of three plays. The first is Agamemnon, the second is the Corfori or the Liberation Bearers, and the third is the Amenities. And basically a rough, rough overview of all three plays is the wife of Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, murders him, the murder of Clytemnestra by her son Orestes, the trial of Orestes for murdering Clytemnestra, the end of the curse on the house of Atreus, which is the house and the family sort of lineage, and also the pacification of the humanities. So, I mean, as you can see, there's a lot going on here in terms of family drama. One big family murder, which is absolutely fascinating and wonderful, but let's not get into that yet. Let's have a little background. Aeschylus is often described as the father of tragedy because our knowledge of tragedy and, and the tragedian genre actually starts with his work. And I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying this is incorrect from a historical point of view, but it's actually just so difficult during this period where we have so few sources. And an example is, it's estimated that Aeschylus wrote between 70 and 90 plays and only seven remain, which like, is a huge, huge tragedy. Hello, pun. Uh, we do have snippets and pieces that allow us as historians to compile a rough list of what was produced. And the Orestia trilogy is so vital because there is evidence that Aeschylus wrote more than one trilogy which is also interesting because it appears to be the first time the idea of a trilogy is being used with connecting stories, but it, despite only missing a few lines, is the only complete trilogy in all of Greek history we have. So the Orestian trilogy is so vital for so many different reasons. The two main reasons this is important is because, historically speaking, quite literally, more the merrier when it comes to any information about the ancient world for creating a more comprehensive view of what it was like, and I'm sure you could tell from the fact that you know 90% of what this man produced has been lost to the winds of time. Just hammers home how vital any kind of written, any kind of written sort of works are. You might also be thinking that a play concerning the War of Troy being produced somewhere between 500 and 700 years after the event might not actually hold any historical value, but it does. So I'll touch on that a bit later. And the other reason is because it's a literary piece and we get to see certain styles in plays, structures, ideas, etc. An example, of course, is, as I previously said, that this is the first evidence we have for tragedy and for trilogy. So they're two key vital things that we can draw from this particular trilogy and also this particular play as well. So very, very important. So why don't we have a slight overview now to focus a bit more on Agamemnon. It is a very short play which is so great because it's an afternoon read if you're that kind of person. I think it's 80 pages, uh, a, a one session read. I think I did it in two and it's just one of those really quick but really tight literary pieces that you can sink your teeth into if you're looking for something. But basically, the play is about Clytemnestra waiting for Agamemnon, who is the king of Mycenae, to return after the 10-year war of Troy. Clytemnestra has been planning his murder to avenge the death of their daughter, that Agamemnon killed for favourable winds to sail off to the Trojan War initially 10 years prior. Clytemnestra also wants to be able to publicly embrace her lover Aegisthus. I mean, such a wonderful idea for a story. It's immediately wrapped up in revenge, tragedy, vengeance. I love it all and, you know, what is perhaps one of my favourite things about this is that in the Homeric epics, Homer's works, Clytemnestra is a side character. She's little formed and not, and there's not much on her, but 
in the Orestia trilogy, she is a woman fully developed and flourishing on the page, which means that the Orestia trilogy and Agamemnon as well is basically spin-off fan fiction, and I I just love that. It's so it's it's such a fun idea. So I guess that's a brief overview, and I think to kick off, I might just read the opening passage of the work so that you're across how rich the language is. Now, now I will preface this by saying that my translation is the 1956 Penguin edition translated by Philip Vellacott. So here we go. Oh gods, grant me release from this long, weary watch. Release, oh gods. Twelve full months now, night after night, dog-like I lie here, keeping guard from this high roof on Atreus's palace. The nightly conference of stars, resplendent rulers bringing heat and cold in turn, studding the sky with beauty. I know them all and watch them, setting and rising, but the one light I long to see is a new star, the promise sign, the beacon flare, to speak from Troy and utter one word, victory. So that's how this, uh, the play opens, under this nightly conference of stars, and already we can see how there is this wonderful cadence to the passage, if I did it any justice, but uh, they, they flow with this, it, it flows with this dreamlike prose wrapped in this rich language that still speaks to us nearly two and a half thousand years after it was written. And it also has this somber feeling to it, the watchman wanting a release to the long and weary watch, pleading to the gods for victory from Troy, capturing the racked feelings that would accompany anyone left at home during these situations. Especially pre-technology, where all you can survive on is the occasional message and hope. But ultimately, the passage is wrapped up in this sense of impending doom. And there is this impending doom throughout the story, revenge making up a large portion of it. In fact, while this piece can be read on its own, it's actually made richer by understanding the historical background. The whole premise rests upon the curse of the House of Atreus, which says that the bloodline will continually murder themselves. So, as you can see, the whole story is in the shadow of this larger dramatic ideal that the Greek gods are so known for. Interestingly though, despite shrouded in violence, the violence always takes place off stage, which abstracts the audience from the acts, making you focus more on the philosophical and moral questions that are being explored. In a world and story so wrapped up by the gods' intervention, Clytemnestra's acts serve to question humanity's position in it all, questioning and acting against divine punishment. Now throughout the play, there's actually this kind of sympathy for Clytemnestra, for her actions, that being of revenge. This is a passage in the play that is sung by the chorus, and the chorus is a group of old men who didn't fight in the Trojan War, and now basically the purpose of them is to stand on stage and be sort of the overviewers of the story, and they fill in sort of the gaps, that, the, the questions the audience might be having. And they sing... Heedless of her tears, her cries of father, and her maiden years, her judges valued more, their glory and the war. A prayer was said, her father gave the word. Limp in her flowing dress, the priest's attendants held her high above the altar, as men hold a kid. Her father spoke again, to bid one bring a gag, and press her sweet mouth tightly with a cord, lest Atreus's house be cursed by some ill-omened cry. And so what we have here is the initial murder of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's daughter and how he, he killed her and you know she's crying father in her maiden years and her judges valued more their glory and the war. And that's such a, oh, such a powerful line because, yeah, 
basically the, the idea of success in this war is more important than the life of his own daughter, and so he sacrifices her. And this is why Clytemnestra wants revenge, which is in incredibly fair enough. However, it's her decision to also murder Cassandra, which paints Clytemnestra as a more crazed individual. Clytemnestra says, after having killed them both, that's Agamemnon and, and Cassandra, that the killing of Cassandra lends an added relish now to victory. Now, Cassandra for placement is said to have been the virgin daughter of King Priam, who was the king of Troy, and she was taken as a slave mistress. So you can see it kind of gets a bit murky. We can sympathize with Clytemnestra wanting to avenge her daughter's murder with the killing of Agamemnon, but also including the murder of a slave girl is, you know, maybe a step too far. This, of course, plays into the much larger story of a family that is wrapped up in violence and bloodshed. And this act, of course, then goes in to lay the foundations for part two of the story in the second play. But it is after this that the play becomes really juicy, because now the play is concerned with moral dilemmas extending to revenge. Is revenge really as satisfying as it feels in the build-up, or is it a distorting force that corrupts you? If you were to ask Clytemnestra, she might say, yes, bugger off, I loved it, I, nay, I relished in it. But in essence, it's this tragedian exploration of bloodshed, morality, and ethics that creates one of the best tragedies in history. Now, historically speaking, any kind of play or piece produced can offer insights into the world which it in itself is produced. Now, it is very reasonable to read this play and think, because it is concerned with something that is happening hundreds of years prior, we might not actually be able to pull any meaningful information relating to the contemporary day of 458 BC. But as a historian, there is always, always, always information to be pulled. Now again, you might think it's, it's a waste of time because it's what could technically be a made-up story from a different time. So how is there any value in this? Well, the best way to kind of explain this, I think, is to, to turn to a TV show. And I'm going to take How I Met Your Mother. Now, don't judge me on that, please, because, you know, I... Like, I grew up watching it. It's just, it's a, it's a lot of fun for me, but... It's in this TV show, it's, it's, it's a fiction story taking place in New York. And yet, from a non-fiction point of view, there is a treasure trove of information. Everything from the language used to the fashion worn are all details of truth that are layered within the story. If you go watch the first episode compared to the last, there is a huge difference in the world that has evolved significantly from 2005 until it's finished in 2014. To be a bit more blunt and I guess give you a bit more of a historical staple, the first iPhone came out in 2007, so already through the appearance of the iPhone within the show, we have a significant staple for humanity through a fictive story, and it is much the same with this. When I was studying my masters in history, I was in Israel, and my professor would constantly talk about history, and he'd always turn to us and ask a question, but then he would answer it with, well, we don't really know, because historically there can always be that element of doubt. We can only sort of make informed decisions based on the facts available. In this play, Aeschylus makes Agamemnon the lord of Argos, despite the fact that in the Homeric version of events, Agamemnon is actually the king of Mycenae. It's a very small and very subtle, and it's an incredibly simple change as well, but around this time that Aeschylus was writing this play, Athens had entered into an alliance with Argos, and therefore this play could be seen as a reaffirmation of that allegiance. It's a small detail like that that can add validity to a fact, but it also just sort of highlights why history can be so fun. 
and hammers home what I said earlier about when it comes to historical texts, even if it's fictive, the more the merrier. So, like, I don't really want to end the chatter yet, so I'm going to read one more passage just so you can see how wonderfully musical this work is. So here is a wonderfully written piece to finish on before I move on to the next part of the episode. Alas for human destiny, man's happiest hours are pictures drawn in shadow. Then ill fortune comes, and with two strokes the wet sponge wipes the drawing out, and grief itself hardly more pitiable than joy. So that was Aeschylus's Agamemnon. And fear not, I am definitely going to do the next two episodes. They will be coming out, uh, I don't know, but not too far. I'll try to do it sort of in a, in a structured way that they're an equal time apart. Them, But they're coming. They're definitely coming. So what would I rate this? I'm going to rate this a solid 4.5, 4.5 out of 5. It's a very sparkling, rich example of Greek tragedy, and I think everyone should read it. So what am I reading this week? This week, I am reading a novella called Poison for Breakfast by Lemony Snicket. And oh my God, stay tuned. I'm definitely going to do an episode on this. I've already read it. This is my second read. And like, if you're a fan of Lemony Snicket or have read a series of unfortunate events or any, any of his other works, you know his style. And it's a style that genuinely makes reading fun. At least I think in my opinion, because a lot of people don't enjoy it. It's an incredibly simple premise. A man finds a note saying that he has had poison for breakfast and what ensues is an adventure, both physical and philosophical, to get to the bottom of this problem of being poisoned. It's written in the Lemony Snicket tone of voice. It's, it's a very cyclical story. It takes a long time to get to sort of a very short distance, but that's sort of what makes it so wonderful and rich. I love it so, so much, and that's what I'm reading, and I'm definitely going to do an episode, so stay tuned for that. Now... Before I close out the show, if you've listened this far, please consider hitting those five stars. I, of course, would really appreciate it. Also, feel free to head along to the website and support the pod. And, of course, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. Well, I think it's time to end this episode. So today, to take us away, a bit of the Roman historian Mary Beard. And she says, Classics isn't about the ancient world. It's partly about the ancient world, but it's about our conversation. It's about how we try talk to antiquity. 